This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Now, you've been following this story all day. I know you have, whether it's here, whether it's on CHCH at the spec, wherever. You've heard this story about this tragic shooting in downtown Hamilton. Young man, 19-year-old Yosef Al-Haznawi was apparently, according to every story, was at a store, was at a convenience store, and somebody was bothering an elderly gentleman, and he stepped in to try to help. And it com- it quickly and completely spiraled out of control, and he was shot and later died. It is it is distressing on its face. It just the fact that here in Hamilton we're having these kind of things that's bad enough. We don't. I mean, it it, it causes great concern for a lot of people. But beyond that. There's other elements of this that really have caused a lot of concern for people and really have caused a lot of people to be troubled. He was doing the right thing. He was doing an honorable thing. We're calling it the Good Samaritan shooting. It's it's an appropriate name. It was random. We always like to believe that if you stay in your lane as it was, if you don't bother anybody, if you don't get in trouble, if you don't go in bad area, you're going to be fine. Well, not in this case. And the fact that there are people out there with such callous disregard for other human beings that they would shoot somebody with such little provocation. It is really, really a troubling story in a lot of ways. And so again, you've been listening to this story. You know the story. Now, we're not going to go into all the details, but there are some parts of this that we do want to get to today. And one of those parts that we're going to lead off with tonight is some troubling, difficult, kind of bizarre, quite frankly, eyewitness reports about what happened with the paramedics who were at the scene. Well, one of the people who was there, one of the witnesses who saw what was going on that night is a neighbor, and a guy who lives in the area named Tom Rosinski, who joins me now. Tom, how are you tonight? I'm great. Now, people who have been listening to this station today, they've been hearing your voice. You've been on here. Uh, but let's go through this completely from when you arrived. How did you arrive there on Saturday night? What brought you to that area? Oh, we were, me and my son-in-law were watching a movie, and we could hear screaming. So you lived close enough that it was... Oh, yeah. Okay. And go ahead. Paused the movie and walked around the corner. And what did you see? A young fellow lying there, and uh, then the paramedics pulled up. Okay. And obviously this time of night, it was, what, 9 o'clock or so? It's dark. Is it? Could you see a lot? Well, it was almost 10. Okay. And could you see much? Uh, at first, till the fire truck got there. Okay. And with the flashing lights, you really couldn't see. And then the one officer asked us to leave. But could you tell right away? You say you showed up and there's a young guy there. Can you tell right away that he's in sort of more distress than, pardon me? You could tell he was in pain. Okay. Because they tried lifting him up and he just kept saying, it hurts, it hurts. And what did they say? Ah, you're faking. And the paramedic said to him, oh, you're a good actor. They said that right off the bat when they arrived? That's what you recall hearing? Yep. Like, they were there maybe five minutes. Is there, when you're standing there looking at this, and even in retrospect, when you're thinking about what you saw, can you, is there some way that there could have been, in your mind, some legitimate confusion by the paramedics about what was going on? Was there something, in other words, that with what you saw that you could say, I I could see why they might think that he was overacting? I mean, clearly he wasn't, but was there something that could lead to that confusion? Just the fact that there was no blood. Okay, so you couldn't see any blood? No. And he was talking as well, right? He was communicating with them? Yep. How close were you to them? Like, did they have to shout at him, or was it just a conversation they were having? Oh, it was just a conversation they were having. Like, I was maybe 10 feet away. Wow, okay. And in your mind, Tom, there is no doubt about what you heard. I mean, this is a, this is a frantic scene or was getting more frantic. There's no doubt in your mind that you heard clearly what you say you heard. Oh yeah. Till the, uh, uh, the fire trucks and everything came and then you couldn't hear anything because of the alarms. How long were you standing there when you saw them talking back and forth and sort of seemingly not taking this all that seriously? Oh, 15 minutes till the officer told us to leave. And then we went to the corner and we watched him trying to get him up. And uh, he kept falling back down. And that's when we heard him say, well, you're a good actor. So, but it, you're talking that it was at least 15 minutes with them. Yeah. And were they giving, could you see, was any treatment being administered? No. They were more or less just trying to get him up. And 
he kept falling back down. Is this an area, Tom, I, I, is this an area of town where this would happen, Not again, not exactly this kind of thing, but where police would be there or paramedics would be there regularly where they might, I don't know, have, have had a lot of false alarms in that area? Are they there all the time? No, just for the senior building. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, but very different circumstances for that. Yeah, exactly. Like, at first, I thought he was stabbed. And then one of the other fellows said, no, he was shot. And somebody mentioned a pellet gun. I think it was one of the officers. It is um, it is a pretty unsettling story uh, that you describe. And it's, uh, again, you've been hearing Tom's voice all, all day on the show, on the station here. I wanted to bring him on just to tell the whole thing. Tom, I appreciate you doing this today. Thanks for your time. Not a problem. That That is, as I say, that is a very unsettling story as he describes it. I'm, I really hope, and I'm not disputing what Tom says, but I really hope that something was misheard, something was misunderstood, because that is, that is not what I don't think any of us imagine is the circumstance if we were to run into trouble and, and paramedics had to help us. It isn't. I hope, I hope there's some explanation for this. Hamilton Paramedic Service today says it has launched an investigation into this. And then because the investigation has started, no further details are available right now. We will wait on that to see what comes out of that. Uh, Unfortunately, we know what happened to the victim, which is the saddest part of this whole story. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Continuing on with the story for a few minutes uh, this hour about this murder in the downtown, we're calling it the Good Samaritan killing. Such a tragic, tragic story. Now, police today announced they have arrested one person, charged them with accessory to murder, and they have put out a, a photo and a name. Dale Burning Sky King is now wanted also in this particular incident. Uh, photo is out. You can find it online. You can... There's a lot more information there, but it's a story that obviously is very troubling to an awful lot of people and has ramifications and repercussions. I want to bring in Councillor Jason Farr, a downtown councillor. This actually happened just, what, about a block or two, Councillor, away from your ward, just outside your ward. Um, do you start to worry? I mean, we've had over 30 now, 30 shootings in the city of Hamilton in 2017. We've already flown way past the number in 2016. Is this something that has reached the level of being more than just concerning, but something beyond that? Oh, I I would suggest, uh, Scott, absolutely. I mean, uh, the statistics are going in the wrong direction, and violent crimes are something that I I give a lot of uh, faith and and, uh, respect to our Hamilton Police Services and uh, appreciating in this particular incident that they've made a, a quick arrest, a relatively quick arrest, and obviously our uh, knowing who they need to go after uh, as far as the second person involved. But uh, personally, too, I lived in this area for oh, probably about five years, right around the corner. And yes, you're right, it's Ward 3, but um, having lived there for half a decade, I can tell you there's some great people, uh, families, uh, students, seniors, uh, who call that community home, and uh, and it really hits home when this kind of violent activity occurs, in particular to the story uh, behind the story here and the Good Samaritan just trying to help a senior citizen. Well, and that's the issue here. Oh, that's one of the issues, not the issue. That's one of the issues because so often we say, you know what, if you don't, if you mind your own business, Jason, if you basically don't look for trouble, you're not going to find trouble. And we like to believe that more often than not, that if you're just going about your life and doing your business, you're not going to run into things like this. This is one of those examples where you look and you go, you know, any one of us, first of all, hopefully any one of us would have intervened in a situation like that. You like to think we all would try and help some senior who was being harassed or hassled, but if it was, that could be any one of us. Absolutely, and and I think it's most of us. I would uh, suspect anyone I know that would stumble across that same uh, terrible scenario where a senior is, uh, I'm not I'd obviously privy to the details, nor are you, but uh, most people I know would interview in, in the same capacity. And so it makes it uh, extra scary for sure. Uh, let me change tack just a bit because, I mean, this is something, again, it's been talked about all day, but I wanted to ask you about, we do a lot of good things in this city for people who have done tremendous things. We have 
the Gallery of Distinction, which is tremendous. It's a wonderful thing for people who have done amazing things in the city. We have, and you know this well, you've been very involved with the Facilities Naming Subcommittee. We've named stuff after people who have done great things in the city. Do we have any kind of honor in the city for people who have intervened or done these kind of heroic things like this victim did and then cost him? Do we have anything that honors those people? We do. It's through, actually, Hamilton Police Services and Emergency Services. I think it's annual. I went years ago to one of the um, ceremonies, and I'm, I'm very impressed that uh, it's well-organized, and it exclusively focuses on just what you're saying. People who uh, provide uh, rescues, who go above and beyond, pulling someone from a burning car, preventing a crime, uh, calling out uh, uh, a crime, or following suspects, those sorts of things. I'm not sure of the title, Scott, but I do know here in Hamilton on an annual basis and through Hamilton Police Services, Emergency Services, we do recognize those folks. So right to your point earlier, you know, most people, when faced with something that uh, deserves attention and not a blind eye uh, and and who actually do that um, in heroic ways are recognized. Our next guest, when we get to our next guest, we're going to be chatting about the idea. There are people, and, and I know our mayor has brought this up as well. There are people who have proposed different levels or different additions or whatever you want to call it to gun control laws, whether it's adding something municipally. Is there something, have you, I mean, you've surely thought through this along with everyone else. Is there something more that we could do reasonably or is this just such a complicated issue that for anyone who's just going to throw, well, let's just ban all guns, that that becomes a little just too simplistic for a problem like this? You know, it was probably a couple of years ago, and I think, so don't quote me on this, but it may have been Mayor Fred Eisenberger who suggested just that. And yes. what we learned in short order, okay, so you do recall, yes, uh, that it was not in our jurisdiction, that this was a federal matter. Yeah, and and I I mean I I love the idea sort of on its face. I think a lot of people say, "Oh, fantastic. That's great. Just ban guns." I just I don't know how you do it, but at the same time when you start to look at these numbers as you said right off the top that are starting to crawl up, um where's the answer? Well, you know, it is it's it's a symptom of something greater quite clearly and in a lot of different uh tentacles attached to this. I mean, it's obviously clear to me anyway that detaining weapons is a heck of a lot easier it seems to be anyway um and then the social issue behind this uh, there's there's uh, lots of services wraparound services that try to help youth that try to commit whether it's uh, uh working out of uh, barton street with the john howard society or the many other services that try to keep uh, the young people on the straight and narrow but unfortunately uh, maybe that's a it's a culture thing. Uh, it's it's a, certainly a social uh, maybe a social economic issue that's uh, it's getting ahead of us. And and I, it does it's very very concerning. I I don't think there's any Hamiltonian who followed this story in the last 24 hours uh, that isn't you know t- really uh, emotional about the 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 sad and callous nature in which uh, this murder occurred. Someone who just tried to help, who had just come from his place of worship, which we learned that is successful in, in school and going to university and ready to make his commitment to society at such a young age to be shot down in our town. It is something we think about, and I'm glad that you're compelled enough to uh, spend this inaugural night with your new hour uh, focusing on this and talking to all the right people. Thanks, Jay. Jason Farr, got to run. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The murder in downtown Hamilton, which has caused such consternation since the weekend when this happened, for all kinds of reasons. I want to bring in Wendy Kukier, who is a gun control advocate. Um, some time ago, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, as Jason Farr just said in the last segment, Mayor Fred Eisenberger proposed banning guns in this city completely, and that couldn't fly, didn't fly. But it is something that certainly has people interested because by September of this year, there had already been 29 shootings. We're now well into the 30s, not Chicago levels, thank goodness, nobody is, but still far ahead of last year and cause for concern. Well, a new poll that was released today by Ecos Research shows 69% of Canadians favor a complete ban on guns 
in urban areas. Wendy joins me. Wendy, thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Are you one of those who would share that view? No guns in the cities? Um, it wouldn't be the top of my priority list, uh, frankly. I mean, Jack Layton, when he was a city councillor in Toronto in the early 90s, proposed effectively gun-free cities. And, um, you know, it's a, it's an approach that's been tried in some jurisdictions. Our Our focus is very much on a integrated um, framework of stronger controls on all guns and because obviously cities have open borders so the the most effective strategies are ones at the national level where you have uh, consistent controls and and um, you know you strict licensing for legitimate gun owners you have controls on the movement of guns and the sales of guns you have controls on the types of guns and so on so that's more what our focus has been it would be very difficult to do such a thing for the very reasons you say we don't have checkpoints when you lead into the cities and people do have registered guns that they are allowed to have so i'm not sure how even though this poll says there's great support for it i'm not sure how you would do it well it's interesting because the um the support for uh what you describe a ban on guns in cities is exactly the same level as the support for a complete ban on handguns, for example. Um, The support for better uh, regulation and tracking of sales and and so on is actually much higher. So you start to hit the 80s and 90% of people when you look at issues around uh, banning prohibited weapons, banning um, military assault weapons and so on. So 70% of Canadians basically will is the threshold for supporting a whole range of uh, gun control measures. And as I said, I'm pretty sure that if they also ask the question, would you support a ban on handguns, the same percentage of people would say yes. But if the numbers are so high, and again, we're talking about this poll, you're talking about the 70%, if the numbers are so high, this seems to be something that could be a political winner for some party if they wanted to latch onto this. Yet, to my understanding, no political party has ever decided to try and push this. They may have talked about putting in more gun controls, but never to the level that the people seem to be saying. Well, I mean, that's been the ongoing problem in Canada. We have very strong support for um stronger gun control, but the gun lobby has really hijacked the agenda. Just last week, uh, the students and families and victims of of gun violence had a press conference to express their concern that the Liberals, who had promised at least, at a minimum, to reverse the, um, the things that the Conservatives had done to relax the controls on guns, uh, they've done nothing. And it's it's hugely... Uh, a result of the very vocal gun lobby, because while 70% of uh, Canadians will say ban uh, guns in the city and 70% of uh, Canadians will say ban all handguns and 90% of Canadians will say we need stricter background checks and 80% will say we want a database to track firearm sales or ban assault weapons. The percentages are clearly in our favor. The problem is those people who say, yeah, I would support that, don't write their MPs, don't donate uh, to political parties, and don't run for political office based on those positions. The gun lobby, which represents a very small percentage of Canadians, um, has dominated the agenda for the 30 years I've been working on this issue. Is part of that, though, not because so many Canadians, we don't see ourselves as being in the same situation as Americans, and we aren't really, but I mean, we are, we don't see ourselves as the same thing. We know we have gun issues, but we don't, we see the stories coming out of the States from south of the border, and we go, okay, we're not them. Well, and that's one of the problems. Canadians are really complacent, but if you compare our, if you compare us to industrialized countries, you have to understand the United States is an outlier. It's an aberration. If you compare us to France or Australia or certainly the UK or Japan or many other countries, we don't look so good at all. In fact, there was a, there was a, a book that just came out on, uh, on guns worldwide that said within the European Union, for example, if you compare us to European countries, we would have the fourth highest rate of gun death. Um, compared to other European countries. So 
I think the the U.S. tends to lull us into a, a sense of smugness that is really not well deserved. And right now, especially with the changes that the Conservatives made. Um, there are better controls over the sales of rifles and shotguns, for example, in New York State than there are in Canada now. And most Canadians don't know that. Most Canadians don't know that in addition to getting rid of the registration of rifles and shotguns and destroying the database of 6 million guns, so we don't know where those guns are anymore, uh, the Conservatives reversed a... a um, measure that was introduced in 1977, 40 years ago, which required when someone sold a rifle or a shotgun for them to at least write down um, the number of the permit of the purchaser. We don't have that anymore. So you can go into a gun store and you can show them your gun license and you can walk away with 50 sniper rifles. No record is kept in the store. So uh, Canadians are, are blindly unaware of how bad our controls now are, or the absence of controls. And for the first time in almost 30 years, um, in Toronto, for example, more guns recovered in crime originated in Canada among so-called legal gun owners than were smuggled in from the United States. Everyone thinks we have a huge gun smuggling problem. Well, actually, today, our problem is the diversion of legal guns to illegal markets. People don't understand that. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Wendy, just before the break, you were talking about illegal guns. There is a perception, at least I believe, I've always thought that the biggest part of this issue is that you're, even if you were to crack down on guns in this country, there's still so many illegal weapons that really all you're penalizing are the people who have the registered legal weapons. You say no? Well, every illegal gun begins as a legal gun. And when we talk about regulation, nobody suggests that requiring that you have a driver's license or that your, your um, car is registered prevents you from driving. Um, the notion is that if you have regulation, you reduce the chances that people who shouldn't have guns will get them. Um, because it makes it more difficult to get them. When you start to relax those controls, when you stop tracking who has what guns, when you don't um, don't apply the law um, as rigorously as you as you can, you create a bigger pool of guns that can be diverted to illegal markets. It's you know legal owners misuse them sometimes, legal owners sell them, and often they're not stored properly and they get stolen. So every single legal gun, illegal gun started as a legal gun owned by somebody either in Canada or the United States. And what's horrifying to me is for the first time, as I said, in almost three decades, more guns in the illegal market have come from Canadians than have been smuggled in from the U.S., according to the uh, Toronto Police, and there was also a study that came out in D.C. which showed exactly the same thing. And certainly in a community like Hamilton, that would be the case. So is the is part of the solution then to say if a gun is used in a crime, there's a couple ways to deal with this, but I suppose, but one of them, if a gun is used in a crime and it was registered at one time, as you described, that once upon a time it was legal and you have not declared it stolen or you have whatever, uh, that you are culpable as well to some degree? Is part of the answer to this that if you do have a legal gun, you are more responsible perhaps than we've been holding people? I, I think for sure. But in order to do that, you have to actually have the information about who has what guns. because And we saw this happen before, um, for example, guns were registered. People would not report them stolen. Um, once you have your name attached to a gun, you're more likely to handle it responsibly. You're less likely to give it to your brother-in-law who says, you know, he wants to go hunting but actually plans to um, shoot his wife. So, so it's really about accountability, in my view, and it's also about implementation. So you can have laws that are on the books, but, for example, a police officer was just killed in... Uh, Vancouver a few weeks ago, or um, outside in, in, I think it was the southern mainland, I'm not sure, but in BC, and it turned out that his killer 
had a lapsed license. So he had at one time been licensed to have a firearm. Um, There were a number of things that had happened. He hadn't renewed his license, probably wouldn't have got a license renewal. And when the police were asked, well, how is it possible he had a a lapsed license and still had guns, they said, we don't have the resources to to, uh, apply the law or implement the law. And when, when licenses lapse, we don't have the mechanisms to actually do the follow-up. Well, you know, if you don't implement the law and you don't apply the law, then then you have a problem. So, I, as I said, I it, to me it just makes sense that when you have things that are dangerous, you regulate them effectively. It's not that you prevent people from using them responsibly, but it is a big responsibility. And as you said, holding people accountable for the guns that they have is is certainly part of the solution. Well, and one of the things that obviously comes to mind for me, and I, I just can see no chance that anybody, any politician or too many are going to want to go down this road. But I suppose the other thing is if you are caught with an unlicensed, unregistered gun, the penalty is so severe that we essentially make it, you know, it, you're going to pay a very, very, very heavy price. If you're stopped somewhere and you have a gun on you that is not yours or isn't licensed, you got a three-year jail term on first offense, something crazy like that, and say, you know, we're going to just scare people into not having these. Well, it's interesting because, um, and certainly, you know, if you want to stop cross-border smuggling, there's a lot more we could do. Um, and instead, you know, often people turn out a blind eye when someone says, oh, I forgot, I left it in my mm. glove compartment. It's very hard to differentiate people who made a mistake and people who are entrepreneurs and plan to sell their guns. But um, 1995 mandatory sentences were introduced for a whole series of, um, of gun-related crimes, and some of them were actually um, overturned in court as being, um, you know, violations of, of the Charter. So Canada's always had <clears throat> some uh, challenges implementing um, mandatory sentences. And, and of course, you, you need to see consequences when people misuse guns. You need to see consequences when, when people aren't um, responsible with their, with their firearms. But um, at the end of the day, what you need is a government that has the fortitude to do what all of the evidence and all of the public safety groups say that they should do and to put the resources into making sure that the police can implement the law appropriately. Uh, Wendy, thank you for the time today. really appreciate this. No, thank you for the questions. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner-operator of the Dundas Real McCoys, Calm Choice Realty, variety of other things in the greater Dundas area. Do they have a GDA, the Greater Dundas area? Yeah, it goes to Greensville. <laughs> I'm tired. It seems like it's nine o'clock. Going to be nine o'clock. I, it's very it's dark out. The second hour. It's it's very and it's very dark out. These uh, when it gets dark at four o'clock now, oh. it's nasty. I can't wait for December twenty first. Uh, nothing depresses me, but I'll tell you this: the getting dark just after lunch is is kind of gloomy. <laughs> when you when you think that in June and July it's light till nine. And now, isn't that beautiful? It is. And now, as you say, you're you're still digesting lunch, and the sun is going down, and you're saying, "Come on, that's yeah." Uh, we got a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, and a lot of it today, since your background is in the world of uh, is in the world of coaching and hockey, <laughs> some of it is going to have something to do with that. And I want to start with this one because I am very fond of this guy. He spent some time here in Hamilton. I think he's a great coach. I think he's a fascinating guy. I really like Guy Boucher, who is now the coach of the Ottawa Senators. But let me run some numbers by you. Tampa Bay, he becomes head coach in 2011. First year, they go to round three of the playoffs. They go to the semifinals. Tampa Bay in 2012, the next year, missed the playoffs. And the next year, he's fired partway through. Bairn, over in Switzerland, as it turns out. He's coaching over there in Europe in 2015. First year, they go to round two. Second year, sub-500 team. Now with the Ottawa Senators. Last year, they go to round three of the Stanley Cup playoffs. This year, they are 9-16. and 16. They are in 26th place. They're eight points out of a playoff spot. There is a clear pattern here that Guy Boucher 
comes to a team, turns that team around, gets them going, and then the next year, for whatever reason, his shtick, his whatever, fades. There's three times in a row that we've seen that happen. I don't. It doesn't sound like it's a coincidence, and he's not alone. So my question to you is, Don, why does that happen? What is it? Why can so many coaches? Ha- why do so many coaches have such a short shelf life? Because they clearly do. That's real short. Uh, Barry Trotz doesn't, and uh, Babcock doesn't. But there are guys around. Uh, Gabby Bruce Boudreau, uh, tremendous success in Washington. Tremendous success wherever he goes. He stays for a while, but he never gets them to where they want to be. They're always good. They're always competitive. The knock on Boudreaux is he can't win in the playoffs, but he keeps a job. Boucher had to go to Europe, had to come back. You know, the old term, one-trick pony, is kind of it. You know, you go in and you rally the troops, and it's just us against the world, and we're better than anybody else. And, you know, but he, I mean, he has Nick Carlson, and that doesn't help when you've got arguably one of the top four defensemen in the league not playing for you. When well, he's had him for half of the time this year, and they've still been losing when he's played. They, they were losing at the start, but well, actually they were winning more when, they, when he wasn't playing. Well, I, I guess if you want to talk about an opposite scenario, when did Paul Maurice get to be such a good coach in Winnipeg? And They're Paul, ready to throw him out the door. That is kind of an opposite scenario. There are guys, like you're absolutely right, there are guys like Babcock, clearly, uh, like Hitchcock generally, Ken Hitchcock, yeah. that can do it for a long period of time. But the vast majority have a seemingly these days a very short shelf life. Generally, the guys with short sh- shelf life have bad teams. Okay, yeah, you don't I, you don't see you don't see really great teams get dragged down because of the coaching. They they can win in spite of the coaching. Real McCoys used to do it all the time. All right, but, so why can a why can a coach then take a really bad team, make them good, but only make them good for a short period of time? And again, I would point to the Ottawa Senators. I don't think the Senators were a third round playoff team last year. They got there, but I don't think they were that good. So how do you do it once? Why can you not do it a second time? Why can you not do it a third time? Well, why you can't do it a second? He's done it one, two, three times. No, but what not he hasn't the done the second team. year, That's right? What I mean. The same team. That's what I mean. So the difference with a guy like that is he comes in and convinces players that are third and fourth liners that they're good enough to be on the second line. He's a tremendous confidence builder and a motivator. And then the reality starts checking in on them. And they, they come back to earth and say, I'm not that good. But if he I'm not them. as good as he. Yeah, but you, it, it's hard to do that on a consistent basis. You can make chicken salad of chicken feathers. A or little other bit. chicken parts. Or other <laughs> chicken parts or, or other extracts. Um, but you can't, it's, it's hard to do it forever. I mean, Chris Contos, I'm dating myself, played for the LA Kings. He was, was an American hockey Fantastic league. in the playoffs that one year. Couldn't play in the regular season, scored 17 goals in the playoffs. Next year he couldn't stay in the NHL hardly at all. So you can convince guys and take guys to the next level. But when the reality is, and you're not that good. And the other thing that you run into is and the Leafs have run into it a little bit uh, as a more local team. Is Ottawa did very well last year, so they're not they're not coming into buildings now and saying no, they're they're not that good. You know, we'll we'll go at seventy five percent and we'll win. Teams aren't relaxing against them. They're not. They're not taking the easy way out. They're getting fired up to play the Ottawa Senators, and everybody's getting fired up to play the Ottawa Senators. Different teams have to face that throughout the league. Uh, Toronto used to say that they had no home ice advantage because so many of the teams that come in and half their half their other teams' players were from the Ontario area, so they had no home ice advantage. Well, you know, it's such a diversified league that has gone away a little bit, but it's the same kind of thing. And now all of a sudden, the Ottawa Senators are a team to be reckoned with, and that may in fact be on another reverse comparison to Paul Maurice's Minnesota Jets. You know, these guys aren't that good, and next thing you know, they ring off nine in a row, and you're going. Wow. Now, Paul Maurice should immediately... Sorry, where do the Jets play? Downtown Winnipeg. Yeah. <laughs> what did I say? Minnesota. <laughs> it was close. They're very close, right across the border. Did I, well, <laughs> well, you didn't hear about the transfer. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. But, but right, though, Paul Maurice got to say, now remember this, when we're one and nine and everybody wants me to get fired again, I'm the same guy that went nine and oh. I had no much... No more to do with the nine and zero than I do the one and nine. I also wonder about how much 
Paul, uh, Mike Babcock is coaching the Leafs, and I believe that he is the highest paid guy on the team. So that if you're a player playing for a guy like that, you know he's not being fired. You know that Mike Babcock is not going anywhere because there's so much money owing to him that if you quit on him or you don't play the way he wants, you are going to be gone, not him. A lot of times you say, well, you can't fire the whole team, so fire the coach. In Mike Babcock's case and a few other guys, you go... might be cheaper to fire half the team. It might be cheaper to fire half the team. So I better play for a guy who's making that much money and has that much job security because he's not going any... Look, what would Mike Babcock honestly have to do to get fired by the Leafs today. I mean, he'd probably have to get dragged into this whole... Say something inappropriate in the front office and do it. Right. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. But yeah, that would be probably the thing that could get him in trouble. But And there's no evidence and no one's suggesting he has. No. But, but You asked me what it would take. And that, that, that's the kind of thing. This week, that'll do it. There's nothing hockey-wise that Mike Babcock could do to get fired right now. They could go on a 20-game losing streak and Mike Babcock is not being fired. Here's a better... Here's a, a good analogy, and I don't seldom have them, so <laughs> listen up. Um, Claude Julian, the former Hamilton Bulldogs, goes in there. I think he signed a four-year deal, like not even a year ago now. So the Habs are losing. Everybody wants somebody's head on a platter. Well, you got to know that, and, and I'm sure Claude's being very well paid to coach the Montreal Canadiens. He's not, he wasn't the kind of guy that was just going to grab the first gig that was available and say. He had options. Yep. And wanted to go back to Montreal, but they owe him a lot of money. And boy, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people glad, including uh, Julian, that Carey Price is back and has decided to stand on his head. I have that on mute. It doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> there are waterfowls <laughs> flying through the air in the studio. But look, I think that if you look at a guy like Mike Babcock or Claude Julian or some of the other really, really highly paid guys, it seems that there it's is something security. to that. There is, ju- you know, the coach is not being fired. So if you don't play the way he wants, and assuming then he actually has some coaching chops, because if he's asking you to coach a certain way you, and he is a crappy coach, he's coaching you right down the toilet. But well, and again, you look at, uh, and, and, and I, I have a lot of time for um, Guy Boucher, but, you know, he was in Europe. He's not a journeyman anymore. Um, and Mark Crawford, was, who was one of his assistants, was a very well respected for a long time in this league, um, would take a job and wouldn't command three or four million dollars a year. He'd take a job if they were offering him the same money as long as he could be a head coach in the NHL. And you're absolutely right. When when you get a coach like that coming in, they don't have the credibility and or the staying power of the Babcocks, of the Julians. Like all the guys that just are happy to be in the league, boy, you know, they don't they don't have that power and the confidence of the players like the long-term guys, like a Pat Quinn used to. How many uh, alert signals do you actually have on that phone? Oh, I got it on mute. <laughs> I've heard three in the past four minutes. I don't know. Is there is there some breaking news of a nuclear attack that we're being hit with or something? This is... Uh... I got the text. There's nothing important. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if we can actually go through the entire list of possible uh, alert <laughs> Sue's is just reminding me she heard the phone ringing. Uh, can we get a siren going somewhere? Everybody has <laughs> the phone ringing. What an idiot. It's like my first day in the job. Yours too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I did hear the first hour. It was great, by the way. I just, uh, I look, you said about guys who don't have bad teams. Back to this for one second until your next alert comes in. Um, <laughs> Scotty Bowman. Did Scotty Bowman ever have a bad year? Did he ever have a losing year? Because even when he was with St. Louis in the expansion year, they were the best. But here's the thing with that. Was Scotty Bowman, if Scotty Bowman had taken a weak team, he never had a weak team. He was a smart enough guy to always go to good teams. Well, you see, and, and that's, that's where the guys with the credibility and the track record can pick their spots. Julian knows you can't win in this league unless you got a good goaltender, and the Montreal Canadiens had the best one on the planet. That's not a bad place to start when you're looking for a job. Now... The guy that did take a team that that didn't that needed a couple good draft picks was Babcock. He did not inherit an up and coming juggernaut, but they've got lucky with Mitch Marner, who they were thinking about sending back to the London Knights, and ended up being very good. He's made whether he did it or Cadre did it to himself, or 
you know, there was quite a maturing there. And then you grab uh, um, Morgan Riley, and then you got Austin Matthews. And, of course, see, the rebuilding in in the NHL now can happen so quickly because the kids, the premier kids, can play out right away. They don't go to the American League automatically for three or four years. Babcock did not inherit a team that was on the verge of going to the Stanley Cup Finals. But, again, going back to Scotty Bowman, I think most people would argue Scotty Bowman is the best coach in NHL history. He's in the conversation. If There's he's lots of evidence best. to support it. And yet, I do wonder if John Schmarkola had been brought in to coach the 1970s Montreal Canadiens, where every single player was basically eventually going into the Hall of Fame. John Schmarkola could have coached that team to a few Stanley Cups. Not all of them. I'm sure Scotty stood behind the bench and said, next. When he coached the Detroit Red Wings. Went next. When he coached the Detroit Red Wings with, those all, with the Russian guys who all came over. And Brendan Shanahan and those guys. Some of those teams, he did not. It, there were other guys who could have done that. Now, his work with the St. Louis Blues and with the Buffalo Sabres, he certainly had more work to do with those expansion teams. But I, I've always wanted to know what would have happened if Scotty Bowman had been given a really bad team. If the best coach in NHL history, at least as most people would see him, had been given the Washington Capitals of 1975, the expansion year when they won, I think, eight games. If Scotty Bowman had that team instead of his Canadians, how would they have done? Would they have won 40 games, 50 games? I don't think so. He might be good for two or three or five or maybe eight more wins. But Assuredly, they'd have been better. Yes. Uh, but, but you can't, again, nobody can make chicken salad out of chicken feathers all the time. doesn't matter who you You are. need players. You know who you don't want to be right now coaching the NHL, you don't think, is Todd McClellan in Edmonton. By so many accounts picked to maybe go to the finals yep. against the Toronto Maple Leafs. Of course, yep. we're reading local papers here, right? But, you know, they, they were earmarked just to go to the top. And they've got the arguably the best player in the world. And they're loaded with talent. And then they get rid of Taylor Hall. And Taylor Hall all of a sudden plays like Taylor Hall supposed to in New Jersey. You know, some of their decisions are all being questioned. They brought in Lucic to be a tough guy. It looks like everything's in place. Now they haven't got uh, Caledonia's uh, Cam Talbot. He's going to be out for three or four weeks, likely. Says yep. two, but probably longer. You know, you don't, you'd rather be Guy Boucher right now than him out there. There weren't a lot of expectations. I don't know if you want to be Ottawa. either one, honestly, because there were expectations in Ottawa, too. When Carlson came back and with those guys, and now you go and you get, uh, what's his face, from Colorado? Um, yeah, Matt Duchesne. Matt he Duchesne. He's got one or two points since he's arrived. Playing like Scott Radley. He, you know, that doesn't make the trade look good. Uh, not really. Not really. Now, as we go to break, you mentioned Cam Talbot out with an upper body injury. I do want to say, I meant to bring this up days ago, but I have been horrified by the latest. You know, hockey people, they come up with short forms and nicknames and things like that. I'll give you a couple. You've always heard hockey people talk about, oh, I love his compete. Okay, compete is not a noun. You can't say I love his compete. That's a verb. It's always a verb. It's only a verb. But they use that all the time. Uh, another one is, um, uh, what's some of the other ones they talk about? They, uh, I can't even remember now. But here's the latest one that they're starting to go with. There's a bunch of others, but I'm forgetting them right now. Uh, the latest one, upper body injury. That takes too long to say now. I've been reading online now. Upper body injury. No, we're not going with that. That's too cumbersome. Now it's just a UBI. He's got a UBI. Have we grown so lazy that, first of all, we we got to this upper body injury, which didn't even, it's not even a thing. Twitter. And then a UBI, I know it's Twitter, but still it's a, well, no, this wasn't even on Twitter. This was someone writing on a website. But that's where it starts. He's got a UBI. Why don't you just say he's got a short, sore shoulder? Does he have a UBI in his UCL? I mean, I, I, we don't need to have this. I can't even spell UBL. Well, it was UBI, so you're right. <laughs> you're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, okay, let us stick with the coaching thing. We've been talking about coaching for the last segment. I want to stick with that for a second because we know that on the weekend, the head coach of the New York Giants came out publicly, football team, and decided after 200 and something straight starts, he was benching his starter, Eli Manning, his starting quarterback. And that didn't go very well. Yeah, how'd that go for you? Uh, because and about, the GM backed them. That went well, too. Yeah, but about four days after he decided to bench Eli Manning, they played a game, and uh, this morning he's out of work. So 
you have a now. I mean, you haven't coached Wayne Gretzky. I understand that, but you've in your leagues. You have coached some of the best players in the league, and they know they're the best players in the league. And you've watched guys coach. How do you handle superstar players? Is it fair to handle them differently, or are you? Do you go to them and say, "No, you are expected to be exactly the same as everybody else"? We've just left them alone. Like our one of our superstars, obviously, was Mark Juris, and he was. He, he was just one of the guys in the room. I mean, he was fabulous. And but let me let me get a different guy. Let me get a different guy though, because he was probably the best player on Rick your Vive. team when you brought in Rick Vive, who had more name recognition than anyone else on your team by twentyfold. Yep. No insult intended to the other guys, but he was. Oh. He's the former captain of the Leafs, former fifty goal scorer in the NHL. And I know it's senior hockey at this point, but what do you do? Do you say just do your own thing, or do you say I want you to be the first one out on the ice and lead by? What do you do? Just let him do what he wanted to. I mean, we didn't treat him any differently. Um, it was up to him to you know, see. That's that's a great question, as all yours are, of course, because I like doing this. <laughs> but um, you know, it was up to him to fit in. He was the former captain of the Toronto Maple Leafs. He was the former fifty goal scorer. We just let him walk in and see how we see how we mingled with the guys. Right? Was he didn't have any airs about him? He wasn't arrogant. And uh, the biggest trouble that, that I've seen in dressing rooms, at least at the level that I've coached at, are guys that walk in and think they're special, and they're not. And they think they should be treated differently, and they're not. And they don't last long. Uh, they don't last long with us. And they generally don't last long in National Hockey League dressing rooms or anywhere else unless you were absolutely spectacular. Okay, so now you, you we mentioned Todd McClellan of the Edmonton Oilers, team that's having a great deal of difficulties this year. You're the coach now of Edmonton, and you have Connor McDavid. Does Connor McDavid get special privileges? Does he get special dispensations from the head coach, if you're that guy? At that level, I would think so, if he wants them, and if it looks like he needs them, you, you, know, you better give it to him. And, 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 and where, the, where that likely special treatment comes from is when a guy like Connor McDavid is not having a good game, and you need a goal in the power play, and he can't seem to hit the end of the rink with a slap shot, he's probably still going over the boards because you know he's got it in him, you know he's special, and you know he can turn it around on you on a, on a dime, and you better go with the guy that got you there. Otherwise, if you lose, Mark Crawford didn't use Wayne Gretzky in the shootout. He will live with that for yep. the rest of his life. That Nagano. I'd have, yeah, in Japan. I'd have sent him over the boards. If he had a broken leg, because I wasn't, I'm not going to be the guy that said we lost in a shootout and Wayne Gretzky didn't shoot. And do you remember who took the final shot and how impressive it was? Brendan Shanahan went in and basically just slid the puck right into Dominic Hoshik's pad. Like, here, just take it. I don't even want it. Just take it. And I, I'm with you. Like, you say, okay, well, why? I'd rather go down having fired all my big guns. Yep. As but, opposed to standing there with a bushel full of ammunition saying, well, at least I kept some dry. Now there, there there are guys that are special, and there are <clears throat> the uh, the Montreal Canadiens traded uh, PK Subban, and there's lots of evidence to support the fact that it wasn't his play on the ice that did it. So, and I don't know any more about it than what I've read in the newspaper and heard on uh, the television. But there's a reason he left, and there's a reason they moved him out. And the problem is when you when you move a quality guy like that out because the coach wasn't able to make it work or for whatever reason it wasn't working the way you wanted it to, generally there's a new regime in, short, regime in shortly after that wishing they had that guy back. But when you talk about special guys, the real good guys, pardon me, you never notice any difference. What do you do about... There are temperamental guys, though, and that's probably the term should be used, and you got to tread lightly around them like some goalies are absolute whack jobs on game day. But what do you do with a great player who, I mean, the, the Giants would argue that Eli Manning is closer to, the, well, he certainly is closer to the end of his career than the beginning. How close he is to the end, we don't really know. But you got a guy who's now, you're not convinced that he's your best option, but he's your superstar player. He's the face of your franchise. If, again, let's go back to the Oilers. If you had been there, well, not the Oilers, because Gretzky was gone before then. The New York Rangers in 1998 or 99, when Wayne Gretzky was winding down his career. If you have Wayne Gretzky on your team and you have a power play, do you tell him not to play even though he's not the guy he once was? 
You tell him not to play? You tell him uh, you're not going to be on the power play this time. I don't think he was on all their power plays. He might have been on the second unit. and But they were very respectful. And what they've done with Gretzky, I mean, it was the farewell tour. And, you know, it was, I mean, he changed the game like Bobby Orr did. And for all the right reasons, whoever was going to have him better do it right. And I think uh, outside of Toronto, New York was the place to let him do it right. Let the let everybody thank him. I mean, he used a different stick every shift and initialed it and so on. But, I mean, you started talking about Eli Manning. The uh, the Giants aren't going anywhere. I mean, the Giants probably can't beat the Ticats this, this year. So they're not going anywhere. So the coach probably makes the decision, look it, we're not going anywhere, and Eli Manning isn't going to be our quarterback next year. If I'm going to save my butt, I'm going to start using the guy, I think, and give him some experience so we're ready for next year. Now, does the coach do that, or do they make an organizational organization decision to say, we owe it to Eli Manning to let him finish up, and we're going to go to him and talk to him about it. But to just sit him down. And embarrass him. And embarrass him. In the biggest market in and, the States. And embarrass the organization, as it turns out. Clearly not touching base with the owner who said, all right, boys, do it your way. you got 15 minutes to make sure this works, because if it doesn't, I'm firing your sorry ass out the door, both of you. I don't think they had that conversation with the owner, and I don't think they thought it would go the way it did. But Eli Manning, like Wayne Gretzky, although there's not quite the comparison, but, you know, he's, he's, won, a, he's won a Super Bowl. Two. Or two. And so you let him go out on his own terms, and you let him play it out, and if he wants to, fine, and if he doesn't. So that's, that's the proper way to do it even as a coach. See, I, I look at the way the Giants are right now, and they were 2-9 and nine going into this week. They're 2-10 and 10 now, but they were 2-9 and nine going into this week. You're not making the playoffs. There's right. nothing, That's what I mean. It's over. There's nothing they could have done the rest of the year to make the playoffs. And so, yes, to your point, you could say, well, we want to see what other guy we have. And I actually, I support that idea. But you start Eli Manning in the games and let him play. Have you do something... you. At the very least, you find a way, as you just said, to not disrespect him, to not embarrass him. There's got to be a way you can do this that doesn't embarrass the guy. Here's what you never know, right? It's it's always the stuff you never know that probably helps you at least understand it or have a better conversation. That coach may have detested Eli Manning for a long time. Could be. And he says, you know what? If I'm going down, I'm going down my way. I don't give a damn if you're a legend or not. But we're going down my way. And he went down. And, and, that's, and there's the problem. And there's and the, but now he's got a place in Florida, so he's there earlier. Doesn't have to worry. But you know what I mean? But we don't know. I mean, Eli Manning may have been telling him how to run the show, and it didn't work. And he's saying, you know what? This was your brilliant idea. Now it's my idea. So you don't know everything, and he maybe didn't give a damn about the legend of Eli Manning. Quite possibly. Right? You don't know what's going on. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, CHML.